You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. back to HeadX, everybody, and I'm really pleased to be joined again by Dr. Nora Kozlowski of Melbourne Business School. How are you, Nora? I'm doing really well. Hi, Martin. Another chance for us to talk to one of your extensive network of connections at Melbourne Business School about some of the issues that have been high on our priority in, in our interaction around HeadX and, and a real priority for the broader podcast and the work that we're doing in the higher education sector in in terms of innovation and change of just trying to think about what some people outside of the direct sector itself outside of our universities think about the future of our universities by getting their perspective on the future of work the future of learning and the way that technology is impacting some of that. So um, that's a really good theme that we've been developing there, Nora, and I'm sure you've been up to some different activities in the last few weeks that have focused on some of that in different ways as well. Last time when we both recorded, we spoke with Brandon Bustide of Kaplan in the US, and a big theme of that conversation was, um, in, in fact, how work and learning are becoming increasingly indistinguishable from each other. Um, and since then, rather than being sort of deeply immersed in pure higher ed, I've spent the last fortnight or so um, speaking at different conferences about the future of skills, the future of learning, and spending some time with different startups that are actually helping higher education to break through the formality of a program-based approach to skill building. And I think it's it's a really nice way to, to segue into the guest that we have today, because um, she really does think about skills in, in quite a different way and, and helps businesses to, um, to unleash and utilize all of the latent potential that they have in their organizations. Um, and I'm super excited to hear about that very unique approach more in today's podcast. Um, so Martin, would you like me to do a formal intro to our, our very special guest? Tell us who's joining us today, Nora. I'm very excited to hear the story. So am I. So today we are joined by Siobhan Savage, who is the founder and CEO of Rejig. And Rejig is the leading global workforce intelligence platform. And it's designed to help organizations find mobilize, upskill, and optimize their workforce. Siobhan is an award-winning workforce futurist, and she's one of the top global experts at the intersection of workforce strategy and AI. Um, so if you don't know, listeners, Rejig was founded in 2019 with a passion-driven mission to create a world with zero wasted potential in people, business, and society. Um, as part of Rejig, Siobhan led the efforts behind the world's first independently audited ethical talent AI, um, and she's earned the status of World Economic Forum Technology Pioneer, Forbes Cloud 100 Rising Star, and LinkedIn's Top Startup in 2022. Um, she's a presiding member of Fast Company's Impact Council, and her work has been featured in notable publications such as Forbes, Fortune, and the Wall Street Journal. It's a very impressive CV. Siobhan was born in Canada, raised in Ireland, and um, now splits her time between the US and Australia. Siobhan, we've got at least two countries in common. A huge <laughs> welcome to the HeadX podcast. Hello, hello. That's a bit of a mouthful, that introduction. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. And I was trying to figure out the accents and the commonality between, between the two of us. So thank you for having me on. Great to have you on, Siobhan. A welcome from me too. And we look forward to hearing more from you straight after this message from our sponsors. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, let's get right into it. Um, Siobhan, you're spearheading, spearheading a mission-driven movement towards zero-wasted potential, which is made possible by your fast-growing workforce intelligence company, Rejig. Um, but before we delve into the Rejig founding story and its unique mission a bit more, 
Could you talk us through your own journey in career and life that has brought you to this point? I would love to. So my background, as you can hear from my accent, I was born in Ireland. I come from a very large family. Um, I wasn't brought up in a world where we had a lot of money and were able to you know, send everyone to university and didn't have that, uh, that privilege. And a lot of my career started very early, just taking on opportunity. And that randomly led me into recruitment. So I could talk. I had the skills where I was able to build relationships and recruitment then started me on this path of, you know, really early in my, I think I was about 18 or 19. Um, I started in, in recruitment. That career then led me to, you know, really obsessing around everything when it came to sort of career and work and, you know, matching people to opportunity was like really started right early in, in my career. But also because I kind of had that insecurity of, I didn't actually have the formal qualifications that everyone else had. I was always thinking about opportunity in a little bit of a different way in terms of, you know, my expertise and the skills. And I was gaining so many skills through folks just giving me access to opportunity. So, you know, I, I started working for a really large global engineering firm um, and I started in the recruitment side, but then I moved into mobilization and resource management and ended up looking after workforce strategy. And the thing that sort of really kind of, you know, got me excited was it was like a blended workforce. So it wasn't your corporate folks that sit behind the desk who are traditionally qualified at a certain level. It was a very broad mix of your desk and deskless workers, which for me was 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 really, really challenging. And what kind of really started the rejig journey was, you know, on one side of my business, I would be hiring thousands of people. And on the other side of my business, I would be firing thousands of people because I didn't have opportunity. And there was this disconnect between how do I, instead of put a job to a job holder, how do I actually bring people to meaningful work? Because that's actually how workforces should operate, right? You know, it, the siloed view of a person is a job title and that's how they're made up just didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense to me because I was a, a very good example of, of, of someone who technically shouldn't have been doing my job, but actually had built the skills in a different way to be in my job. Um, so, yeah, so I, I kind of felt like there was something very wrong about the way we were building our companies. And it felt like an incredible amount of wasted potential for the person, you know, like one, these folks were being impacted and, you know, we weren't able to give them a meaningful career. You know, the people that were, you know, really skill shortage folks wouldn't know what a career looked like in my company. They would leave as well. And then from a business perspective, you know, for every time that you have that sort of change in your business, it costs millions of dollars. You know, wasted potential isn't a, you know, small cost of opportunity. This is, I'm talking multi, multi millions of dollars for an organization. And finally, like the whole societal impact, like if you, you know, take a person out of an, out of, out of work and they're displaced, that doesn't just impact that person, that impacts society as a whole, because there's this ripple effect that will happen from that moment, their family, community, you know, there, there's this thing. So I became very obsessed. Um, I became very obsessed. I became quite um, like rabbit down a, you know, down a little rabbit hole, where I believed in this new world, which was a world with zero wasted potential, where every single person had access to a meaningful career, where every business would have the right people, right skills, right time. And that, you know, in society that as the world is going through this crazy amount of change now in terms of what work looks like, that we're able to make sure that we create a recurring impact and that we make sure that no one's left behind. And that became kind of everything that I believed in. And I don't know, it kind of became my life's work. And um, when I was, um, I have two little babies, I have two daughters. And when my youngest Indy was, um, when I was pregnant with Indy, I became just so obsessed. And it felt when, when I had her um, probably six weeks after having her that I just became like nighttime feeds became not nighttime feeds, but feeding and researching all at the same time. And yeah, like that's kind of where it all started. And it snowballed very quickly into into something much bigger. But that was really where it all kind of came from. That's that's a fascinating story, Siobhan, of um, your journey, your purpose, what's driven you to to initiate Rejig. And we've got a good picture there of how it started. That was 2019, as I understand it. And 
it's only been four years, but I think you've um, you've achieved quite a lot, and the the story's unfolded quite a lot in that very short space of time. Do you want to explain to us how that story's un- unfolded and evolved since the creation in 2019? Absolutely, and I think I think that the thing that I had in my head, and, and by the way, it's not just me. There's two other founders, right? So we've got Xu Zhang. She's got a PhD in machine learning. She's an expert in all all things data, and then there's Mike. He's got software cyber background. So, you know, there's three of us and and we think about ourselves in really complementary terms around, you know, like a bit of a three-legged stool where the expertise sets is so diverse that we're bringing the best minds together to solve this problem. And I think the thing that's really kind of driven us is that we care so much about solving the problem. Um, Like that's that's a very unique thing to have three different expertise layers all completely connected on the same thing. You know, like, how do we give folks access to meaningful work? You know, how, how, like, that's a very driven way of, of, of existing. So it happened very fast. We we got our first customer within, like, five months. Um, we were very purposeful on going big with our vision that we, we kind of believed that the job title will no longer be the label that people will be associated with in the future. Instead, folks will be like a little backpack of skills and we will track all the skills that an individual collects their whole career and that the skills that they're collecting are really important, whether that's education, learning, you know, through projects, through stretch opportunities, through volunteering, like these skills, like I, again, coming back to me, like I, I collected all of these skills. I'm a CEO of one of the fastest growing technology companies without a degree. Like, you know, that's kind of not normal, right? Like that's, that's in itself, but, but weirdly, um, I have collected all of these skills and they are as valuable as some of the skills that I've learned through stretch opportunities and through someone giving me access to what I could have learned when I started doing my MBA. Cause I felt like I had to do that. Right. <laughs> like, and I think, I think this is where, this is where from a, from a rejig perspective, you know, we have all of these customers that are so desperate to solve this problem that they would give someone like me money with a PowerPoint to show them, this is the world I'm building. Do you believe in this world? And I think this is where it's all gonna go, that these customers would actually pay me and build our product with us. So we had that from very, very early on. We had a lot of customers and really big customers too, that you know they've been trying to solve this problem for as long as I've existed as a HR professional. And you know the biggest problems that these folks have is they have no visibility of who their people are. So in an organization, people do not complete profiles. So everyone thinks that LinkedIn is this thing, but LinkedIn only serves the professional workforce. The majority of our workforce is actually your frontline workers, these hidden talent, right? And there's all of these, this information that we don't know about people. And if you're thinking about, you know, moving people to meaningful work, you got to know who they are. You got to know what are all those skills before you? What are all those skills that they've gained with you? But more importantly, what could they do next? And this is where it became really magical, where we were saying to our customers, you don't have a people problem, you got a data problem. You just don't know your people. And if you're trying to build, you know, especially with the work that you folks do, when you think about learning, if you just throw learning at people, they're not going to learn if it's not linked to something meaningful to them in terms of something in the future when it comes to a career or, you know, a promotion or a succession or a complete reskill. And I think this is where we became really obsessed of like, if we can understand who everyone is, and then we can start to use that data to find people, to move people, to reskill people. You know, that is where the power really sits. And that's why we kind of defined it as workforce intelligence. The other thing that really sort of supercharged our journey was, you know, when we first started the company, I had worked on behalf of governments and I was exploring AI at the time when I was in my previous career. And I really wanted to use AI, but I kept coming up with these blockers from our cyber and risk teams where they were like, hold on a second, how do you know what decisions are being made with that model? Like, we don't want to take any risk of discrimination. And it was really interesting because for me, when I investigated it, it really became so simple in my brain. It was like, well, whether a human makes a decision or a robot, if we discriminate against an individual, like that's breaking the law, regardless of a human or a robot. So one of the things we really became obsessed about as well is, well, how do we make sure that what we're building is not going to cause any harm? So we worked, you know, with the University of Technology Sydney, we partnered up with, you know, the World Economic Forum and other folks to build and take Rejig's algorithms and get them independently audited. So like you get your taxes audited, 
we wanted to be able to come to our customers and say that we are not causing any harm because we're not selling you something. We have done everything in our power to make sure that we're not causing this harm because that's our mission. And we want you to be able to not break the law and we want you to be able to have that recurring impact into society as well. So because we then had, had our AI audited, we suddenly had this flurry of interest globally from customers who had been really trying to one, solve this problem, but two, then we had removed the barrier of adopting and using artificial intelligence within the people space that created this like wave that I, I can't describe the wave. It was just so intense in a bad way for us, exciting for everybody, but very hard because it just got really big really quickly. Um, and we started serving customers in 60 countries over the world within our two year, first two years of being alive as a company. So that was that was that was tricky. Um, so so, yes, exciting. Um, we are now thankfully in a more kind of calmer world where we've had a second to, to regroup and to get prepared because the waves are about to kick in again. When this market starts recovering, we are seeing like a lot of customers now going through really big transformations. Um, a lot of change is about to hit us all with, you know, new technologies coming, with digital factories coming. There's just lots of things that I'm seeing coming up over the hill very quickly. So we're kind of preparing for another pretty crazy ride. Wow. A crazy ride. I think it seems like a, an understatement there, Siobhan. Um, it, it's fascinating to hear that story of, of rapid growth, to hear the story of that deep connection to your mission and just being super passionate about the problem that you're solving. And then also it's it's interesting to, to hear um, the kind of at a customer level, what challenges they're facing and how those how those things connect. Um, so so coming back to that um, core mission of uh, a world with zero waste of potential and zooming out from that into what are we seeing in sort of um, at a macro level in our nation? What are we seeing in our economy? Um, you've talked about some of the skills challenges as they apply to to organizations. But um, if you if you zoom out from that and if we just take the example of there was a report um, published this year, which showed that skills shortages is cited as the biggest inhibitor to business growth in Australia alone. Um, from your vantage point, um, what do you see are some of the macro trends that we're observing in the area of skills issues or, or skills shortages? What are you seeing if you kind of look at all of your different customers and then sort of um, zoom out from there? There has never been a more transformational moment when it comes to work like ever, because it's not just in one sector. You know, it's not just like AI is coming to take knowledge workers jobs. There is transformation happening in every industry around the world. And I think that CEOs have such a different problem now when it comes to work and resourcing, you know, their companies, which then flows on to, 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 to sort of whether it's the universities, whether it's, you know, the people that we, how do we train these folks what does training even look like? And I think some of the key things that we're seeing is like, you know, the pace of, of the advancements of AI and generative AI, when you think about knowledge workers and majority of jobs were, were, are going to change quite quickly. And I think they're going to happen at a rate that we've never seen before. And jobs that would have been the jobs that your, your mom would send you to university for are not going to be the jobs that we're going to tell our kids to go to study in the future because they won't exist. And everyone's talking about that, like the future of work, and it's not the future of work. Like I'm working with customers today who are looking at this right now in a completely different way. And I think like it's actually now. And if organizations are starting, not starting to think about this, if education systems are not starting to look at this, we're going to have a massive problem. So I think like that's that's one part of the puzzle. The other part of the puzzle when it comes to technology is if you think of all the factories that, you know, do all of the work when it comes to our packaging, our robotics, our mechanics, our FMCG, there is now this other component where we're really starting to see digital factories come into play as well. So taking the human worker out and putting in digital robotic workers. Now, the thing that really worries me about both of these scenarios is in one hand, you've got this incredible opportunity for us to free humans up to do the most meaningful part of their jobs, right? Like 
get them focused on the tasks and the skills that only humans can do. But what about the displacement that's going to happen now? You know, like I'm very focused on, yes, it's all good and I'm going to help organizations think of zero waste of potential. But part of that is a responsibility to make sure you need, leave no one behind. So working with customers who are going through these kind of strategies to look at, well, what, how do you take someone from a factory and reskill them to something else? And how far is a banking clerk? away from being an agile coach and really starting to build in real insights and you know actual data decision making so that companies and individuals can actually navigate this because we're already here and i've got this sense of urgency right now in myself and in the team where it's like we've got to build fast and hurry like hurry like we've got to get there and model all of the differences so that's kind of like a huge thing that's happening Another thing that's happening that's leading to these problems is you're also seeing businesses, you know, all wanting to shift towards an agile methodology. So you're taking banks and you're taking, you know, retailers and all of these traditional kind of siloed old school kind of businesses are now wanting to become agile organizations because they want to build faster. They want to be able to be more competitive. And that takes a completely different way of thinking as an organization. So skills is one part of the problem. Like in order for you to, to think about any of this, you've got to think about skills, but actually you have to have a deeper level of understanding of what makes up work. And work is not just a little backpack of skills. Work is made up with skills and tasks. So a task is more a skill in action, like a proven ability to complete a task. Um, time and th this is a whole thing that we're working on right now is like how do we take traditional job and job holders and break them down into little baskets of work and sort of be able to orchestrate you know work to workers rather than like a job holder to jobs and I think it's such a different way of thinking um, as well in terms of like and, and I get pretty I, I love this space, right? So it's the perfect blend of like workforce strategy and then AI for me, where it's like, how do we think about how to do this? Um, but that's a huge thing that's happening. And I think, um, you know, we are going to consistently see a war for talent. It will not go away. It's actually going to intensify. You know, we are not training and educating enough folks in the spaces where we need them, like nurses, like in cyber, like in these critical shortages areas. So we've got to find new ways of building that capability in order for us to deliver on our, you know, requirements as a society, you know, for our critical roles like nurses. Um, and then I think the, the other thing is like, you're seeing this like rapidly changing macro environment. Like it feels like we've had three recessions in the space of three years, just this up and down and up and down that's happening and businesses are not super resilient. And I think the other part is that the talent aren't feeling super resilient. Like we've got to be able to turn talent and give, like employees or talent themselves and people like this resilience that they can build and create new opportunity through skill building. Um, because especially if their job is sort of forecasted that it might be at risk in the future or whether it's through a round of redundancies that happen, I think there's this really important thing that we've got to get the population, you know, responsible for navigating their own career as well, that it's not just the responsibility of a company. And I think this is where universities come to play with the tastes, with the companies, with society. We actually all got to get around this campfire together. Because I don't think we're training up the right skills for the future when it comes to how we're building our, you know, our systems and what we're training people and directing people into the right opportunities. Like pe most people don't know that actually the accounting job is probably going to be at risk, you know, and there's probably a whole pile of parents that are pushing them to go and study this in university right now. And, you know, how do we get that information out, right? Like so that folks know to invest their time into the stuff that's going to be valuable. So as I said, there is... There is so many things happening right now that I, I can't sleep <laughs> because it's this like it's this like obsession to like, is anyone else seeing what I'm seeing right now? Because I'm like, I'm seeing this stuff happening and I think we need to all do something about it really quickly. And the governments are not stepping in fast enough, in my opinion, all over the world. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a moment. I think the the sense of urgency is is coming through um loud and clear. Um what's interesting to me is the role that you're playing in that urgency um, in helping employers, education providers, but also individuals who care about their careers. You're helping them navigate this very confusing world right now where it's very hard to know exactly what are you getting ready for. Oh, um, totally. And totally. Exactly. 
but how, how do you know what the future career looks like? And you can you can use some of the the data to to give you an indication as to where there's growth, but also how do you predict it? You know, the further out you go, um, how do you predict it? And if, uh, so I think that's a, a really important um, connection point that you provide. Um, so just getting a bit more practical into um, how, how organizations can navigate through that very um, confusing and, and kind of uncertain territory right now. What's your recommendation, Siobhan, as to how do we build skills quickly? How do we build them in a cost-effective way? How do we build them at scale? So given you've talked about the gaps in areas yep. like cyber, you've talked about nursing, um, AI skills. I think CSIRO predicted that we need another 160,000 AI professionals alone in the next few years. How do you think we can get there quickly? One of the first things before they even get to building, one of the first things a company needs to do is to do like a skills inventory. Like, what have I actually got? Like, what do I actually got and what do I need? You know, like, I think the need is today, but also the future kind of three year, what what do I reckon we need? You know, if, we, if we're moving in this, you know, if I'm a bank and I'm trying to become a digital bank, like, I'm going to have a very different workforce strategy and my, my population and my workforce DNA is going to look really different. Right. And I think that's number one is the skills inventory. So understand my people skills and then what are the skills and task requirement that I need in my business. Um, and then one of the next things you've got to do, and I think this is a really important one that I think folks need to think about a little bit clearer is like, what is my actual workforce DNA? So we got to move away from this traditional, um, job to job holder and permanent worker like it actually has to be a blend and i think like having a fixed workforce which is your typical permanent employees who you know operate on 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 scopes you've got your agile workforce within that permanent workforce that fixed workforce who can move around to work um and then you'll have your flex workforce which is your you know your contingents your contractors your research arms and even like your generative AI and your, we, we call them alternative workers at Regi. Like we've got 24 alternative workers in my company today. Um, and, and I think like one of the things that's really important is to start to think about, okay, I know I know what my skill requirement is. I know what my work requirement is in, in today and coming up. And then how far am I away from this, right? How far, what's the gaps? And you look at it from an organizational level, but then you zone right into individual level. And this is where, again, like it, this is not just the responsibility of the company. So typically this is thrown to HR and it's like, HR solve this problem. You know, this is the responsibility of the employee. It's the responsibility of the leader. And it's also responsibility for the HR. And we all got to find a way for those folks to gather around that campfire as well to solve the problem. And we've designed our technology in a way that you've got this one central nervous system of information. And it's hyper-personalized then down to the end user. So the decision-making support tool for me as Jane, the employee, who's being told that her role is likely going to be impacted in the next two years, prime me to where I could go and then nudge me in the direction of that. Don't just give me a learning platform and tell me to start learning because that is probably one of the most overwhelming experiences. It's like, you know, whenever you're like shopping for your kids and you're like stressed out after a day at work and you go into like the shops and it's so overwhelming because there's so much stuff. Like it's the same experience when you get someone in that moment in their career where they just, someone has just took their like livelihood away from them. And then you're giving them a learning platform and say, here's a million courses, fill your boots. Like that experience is broken. And we see under 9% of the population learn like that. And the reason they don't learn is because imagine being that person, how like that moment itself is so like impactful to them that they don't know where they could go. They don't know what, what possibility looks like. No one has shown them, here's someone else like you who has done stuff like this. And our technology for the employee or for the talent is, is really specifically focused on, here is what we can see you could do and what potential looks like for you. And the AI will model that forward-leaning pathway to show them that, you know, these 10 skills that you've got, you don't need to start from this, you know, right from the beginning. You could actually use these skills and, and turn them into something else. So like, again, I'm the perfect example. Like who would ever put me in this job? But if you look at the skills that I've gained in my career, I've actually been collecting little skills that are actually super valuable to me today in my, in, in my role. So I think being really focused on, like the same, if we keep trying to design our companies in the same way, it's not going to work. Like it's going to break. Like we got to, in order for us to look at this new world, you've got to design your workforce DNA in a completely different way. And the strategy that links to that has to be different. Um, and the skills become the currency 
that your workforce operate operates under, right? It's this kind of idea that like your marketplace is your company and, you know, essentially every organization will become uberfied in a way where, you know, gigs and projects and positions are all there and work moves around the organization um, and skills becomes the currency that we make that match through. This is um, a fascinating conversation for me, Siobhan, having spent so much of my li- my lifetime and career working in universities around the world. And you've said a lot, of, a lot in your answers so far about what governments need to do, what companies mm. need to do, what individual employees. I'm I'm just sitting here thinking, what on earth do universities need to do about this? I, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the core purpose of higher education has increasingly become trying to ensure that graduates are prepared for the world of work, whether it's future or not, and that they enter, that they, that they enter the workforce from higher education with um, maybe a combination of broad-based human skills and some specific technical skills. And I think the the sector has woken up to the need that it's not just about graduates going into a workforce and going on their merry way for life, that lifelong learning, constant upskilling, you know, we're experimenting as, as a sector with micro-credentials, specific short courses. We're trying to address those gaps for in-demand skills. But when I hear you talk, I can't help but think we're doing nowhere near enough i mean is that your assessment and what else do we need to be doing i mean i'm i'm pretty critical like but but i do think there is a sense of urgency that's probably missing um and i think we like uh, for the last 10 years we've been talking about this like future of work thing it's just like guys like move on it's happened we're here like and what are you doing about it right like let's stop with the future of work it's done you know like it's today and if we don't get a move on, we're going to be building a whole pile of capability that's not going to be required. And the universities need to be building new capability and, and understanding what rules we do need for the future and building out all the new courses that are going to help us build the new capability that we need in the next five years. And I think that, you know, governments have tried to do little widgety thing, widgety websites where they, you know, come in and input this. But like, that's not where the population that they're attracting do not go to the government website. They've missed the point. Like, like these workers, the, the, these people, they're missing. They're not getting anyone going there. So no one sees it, right? You build it and no one's coming. So I think like we got to like, it, it's, it's a multi, it's a very complex problem to solve, but I think there's some things that we could do really effectively to target the people that we know are going to be impacted, give them the like hope, right? Give them the hope of what could happen in the future. Like rather than this like negativity, like show them what's possible, show them other people like them who have done this, show them what exciting opportunities will exist. And then universities build the right, like the right courses and education to get the the world to those places. And I think like governments need to step in and, you know, do some funding, whether it's tax relief to organizations to look across their, 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 their teams and think, well, we know that out of you know, we've got 10,000 workers, we know that 5,000 are going to be impacted. Okay, so let's actually incentivize these folks to start learning. And the micro-credentialing stuff you guys are doing is great, but is it focused on the right subject and the right topic? That's probably my bigger, like, question is, like, is it really focused on the stuff that we know we're going to need to be able to do when, when, when these AI and these generative AI changes our jobs? Like, have we built the right capability? So, anyway, like, I don't know. It feels like there's like a moment now where it's like I'm kind of fed up of being nice about it and being polite. It's kind of like we should all be kind of stamping our foot a little bit now and going, okay, guys, let's go. You know, like here, here's our moment. Let's not waste it. Um, I've got really strong views only because I spend every second of my life obsessing over this. And I also have two little girls, right? And I watch how they're being taught and I'm like, oh God, you know, like, like, how is this going to and I'll tell you something really cute like my daughter who's nine and I've been she helps me with my content and I taught her how to use chat GPT and so I've been teaching her how to put it on Trello and then go into chat GPT and she's got this little content system and her teacher give her a speaking class assignment and she read it to me and I was like, this is incredible. It was all about like a story about going to Mars. And I was like, this is so good. Like, oh my God, she did it on ChatGPT. And I was like, I don't even know whether to be happy or upset about this. I don't know what's my parenting moment here. Like I was actually from a professional perspective going, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. And I had to really think about it. And I called one of my teacher or my friends who's a teacher. And she said, but the task was not to write. It was the presentation 
was the thing that, that she was being measured on. And I thought, wow, like it's going to completely change, right? Like how are kids going to be in the classroom educated at nine years of age? It's, it's crazy. There's a real question for us to answer as educators about what's the role of knowledge and what's the knowledge that we teach now? What's the knowledge that we teach into the future? If there's parts of what we currently do that we, we just don't need anymore. I mean, even just take creativity as one example, you know, mm. I personally always had creativity as part of my professional identity, but quite frankly, ideation now, I don't really need to be doing that much by myself anymore. I can actually just augment that using tools. So the question is, you know, do you actually then need to be spending time teaching this particular skill into the future? Um, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there about what we need to be doing better, differently. And I, I love your observations about, you know, guys, move on. <laughs> it has changed. And um, yeah, I think this is kind of the conversation that Martin and I are having on this podcast is, is how our universities adapting and not just how are we adapting to a world that's already changed, but how are we helping to prepare for the future? And Martin, I can see you, you're eager to jump in there. Oh, I just uh, want to agree with both of you, really. I think the time's to is one to move on. And we've been saying that on for a number of years now on this podcast and the work that we've been doing. I, I think it's great to have a voice like yours, Siobhan, on this podcast to reinforce that and I guess the the question that it leaves me with is how do universities best get be, best move on what do they need to do to move on what are, how can they engage with you in doing that you, you, you know how are we going to bring about that change other than pointing out the blindingly obvious to them as something that can't just carry on and persist we're, we're in the middle of a major review of our sector in australia at the moment we're trying to look at what the skills needs are for 30 years into the future and how to organize our universities differently to do it but we're moving things at the edges rather than changing yeah. the culture yeah do you want my honest answer i think so <laughs> link it to profit like directly link the behavioral change from your deans and your professors and all the people that make all those important decisions directly link it to profit that if they do this, they will make a lot more money and they will become the top universities. So like, like, like what's the cost of impact here? What's the cost of doing nothing here? I know that if I was to talk to any Dean, I'd be like, you're missing out on such an opportunity, you know, like to make an incredible amount of money and to restructure and rethink about how you could re-educate all of Australia and you don't need to bring them into your classrooms you could break it down into little chunks and put it through products like Rejig and I think that this is being like it's they're like wasting the moment themselves because someone else is going to step in and do this and um so yeah so if it was me and I was in the room I would just tell them how much they're wasting their their money like that there's such a wasted moment and I think that becomes such a driver for behavioral change when folks realize and we see it with companies all the time like that you've got really honest to goodness people that really care about this and they struggle to get this change happening in your business and one of the things that I've learned is okay let's just make this all about business and imagine there's shareholders involved here and I've got shareholders I've had to learn to be a CEO and I can't just do things because it's the right thing to do and I now know how to translate it back into impact what is the cost of not doing this and what will be the impact and suddenly things change and budgets free up so I think like if it was me, I'd be starting to talk like that and be really quite forceful on that because you can't really not do it when you see the numbers. The numbers are so powerful. And if we understand the size of the population size and the total addressable market that universities could really access and change, we know the displacement that's about to happen. We know that folks are going to have to learn. So here's your opportunity. And it's also a triple win because you're doing the right thing for the person. The companies are getting more talent and the right talent and also hey you're doing the right thing by society because no one's being left behind so it's kind of a no-brainer so like if they're not doing it like then that's a lack of leadership really um because yeah that's what I, I and that's that that's where I'm kind of like I've always like been softly around the edges but now I'm like no because you're wasting the, the moment and it's actually required from the universities to do this now I think what you're drawing there is a partly the the profit lens, but also there's a societal lens as to what are universities actually here to do. Um, so let's let's go into and just listening to your last answer there, it's it's very clear that you are sort of a um, uh, a very strong founder and entrepreneur. Um, so let's go into more of the the startup and innovation ecosystem in Australia. 
And of course, through Rejig, you've had firsthand experience of that larger innovation ecosystem, which, you know, universities do play a part in that too. Um, I'd love to hear your observations around how Australia's ecosystem, how the innovation ecosystem supports startups in their growth journeys. And what excites you about aspects of our innovation ecosystem and also where you still see that we have room for growth here? We, when we first started, we had no money. Like the founders all sold their houses. You remember I had a little baby at the time. Like it was all very high risk for us. We were all grown ups with kids, with houses, with like proper careers. And we all gave them up. And that was like a lot of money to build what we were building. And University Technology of Sydney actually took us in and let us work in their innovation hub. So we actually got to work there for free. That would have cost us an incredible amount of money. Um, and we had a place where we had access to one space and two, like it kind of like was a little pod of like just energy. And I think we, we wouldn't have been able, like we were working in Westfield. When we, when we wanted to get together, right? We were working in Westfield or at my kitchen table with a baby crying. Like it was like, that was how we were working at the start. So that was really like, that was probably the thing that stood out the most for me in terms of the ecosystem. Like there is a lot of stuff that happens in the startup ecosystem. But like when you're someone like me who has only two things going on in their life, I've got my kids and I've got Rejig. I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of time. I, I, I kind of want to learn from people who are in the ring, who are getting smacked at the same time as me so that there's that empathy. Um, so I think like, you know, I've got really good investors and they create like these little private communities where you can be super vulnerable. And, you know, Airtree is a really great example of some of the stuff that they do. They're one of the, the leading venture capital firms in Australia and, and they spend a lot of their money on community and like CEO communities and, you know, DTO communities, like they, they, their curation of the community. So it's very valuable that if you're giving up two hours of your time that you're getting something from it. So that, that was really good. Um, I was mentored, um, you know, right early on in my journey. So I don't know if you guys know Didier um, from Culture Ramp, but, you know, Didier was mentoring me as part of an ecosystem mentoring program. And that changed my life because that I didn't have any venture capital connections. Like I didn't even know that venture capital was even a thing or money. People give you money for your idea. Like that was like mind blowing to me. Like I had no idea. But he opened the door like, and gave me access that I would never get before. Like, how would someone like me have access to stuff like that? You know, so I think there's a, a combination of giving you a community place that you can go and like get help is really important. A, a part where it's like give folks the space and the New South Wales government has now, and it's a couple of years old now, but they've built a like startup hub where you can drop in and you can kind of have meetings. And, and that's, we still use that to this day because we're a remote first company now. Um, and then the third thing is, especially for women, especially for folks that are coming not from university or not from traditional places that you find startups. Like think of like older people who are in corporates like us, you know, that don't have the connections to the ecosystem. How do you bring them in? Because some of the best businesses will be built from people who've had real pain and have experienced an empathy for a problem. So how do they get access? You know, because that's really important. So, I mean, it's it's got a lot better, like in the last couple of years, like it's, it's just getting, I find it hard to get the time to go to anything. Um, and then also I spend a lot of time in the U.S., um, in the UK. So I kind of get sucked into a little bit of it over in the US as well. So um, yeah, I think, I think the universities have a really great opportunity where you're kind of like, you kind of sit on all these incredible ideas that are not operationalized. And it's like, how do we take all of those incredible ideas that are on research papers and turn them into like actual things? You know, like I think there's such an exciting thing that we're underserving the research area in 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 Australia. Like I fund a lot of research. Like I, I do stuff with UTS. I do stuff with CSIRO. You know, like like I've kind of put my money where my mouth is and like invested as much as I could to to do stuff. But I just think there's so many opportunities for companies to also partner in, um, whether they're startups or, or more grown up organizations to really leverage the expertise that exists. Cause that's quite hidden talent as well that no one's tapping into in my opinion. That's been an absolutely fascinating journey through the the world of recruitment, the world of re rejig, <laughs> the world of Siobhan Savage. And, uh... I know it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a tornado, isn't it? <laughs> 
and the future and the, the future of universities. I, I don't think we've got time for much more here, Siobhan, but maybe just in closing, you can tell us what's next for Rejig and what's next for you. Next for Rejig is we're preparing for this massive opening of the change next year. There's a lot happening. And I think like I'm going to become a lot more present in the space now that I've built the product. It's like now moving out to help. So, you know, I'm going to spend a lot more time educating and training and teaching people that like why they need to do it. And I've probably got a different perspective than most, which is not a good thing, not a bad thing. It's just a different view. Um, and I think for Rejig, like I think like, you know, the category in our space is just formed. You know, Gartner just labeled the, car the, the category just recently. And I think like we're right at the beginning of our journey of this technology even being recognized as, a, as an actual category. So we got to get right up front and, you know, global domination is, is very much so where I spend my, my time um, and not a lot in Australia right now. I'm mostly in the US. Um, so yeah, incredibly exciting times ahead. And I think I would love to find a way to bring the universities closer to what we are doing um, because I think that it's everyone around the campfire together. And my, my final thing I would say to everyone is like, let's not waste this moment. We've got this opportunity. Like how many times in your career do you get to be doing something like this? Right. So it's like, let's not waste it. Well, you've wasted no time and wasted no opportunity to put some very clear views and exciting ones to us today. Thank you so much for being a guest on, on HeadX, Siobhan. Nora, anything in closing? Wow. <laughs> I'm, everyone's probably exhausted. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just so happy with just the picture you've painted for us. Um, and yeah, there's just, it, it makes me think, yeah, we need to get our act together in this sector to actually build the skills and the workforces for the future. And like you said, it's everyone around the campfire together. Well, that was Siobhan, Nora. You said, wow, when she was with us. What do you really think? She was quite a tornado and quite a force of nature in the provocations and challenges that she raised for our sector. And I think um, it was very interesting to listen to Siobhan being an outsider to higher education um, and her perceptions of whether we're changing fast enough and, and whether we're really rethinking the model of of higher education whether we're we're keeping up with the pace of change in the world and the pace of um the skills that are required now and that are rapidly changing and i'm thinking about as somebody who's immersed in universities and who's who's very across processes that are at the very core of what we do you know think about things like course approvals think about subject development and think about how long that takes for a university to make a decision about which products or programs it offers to the market. Um, and then by the time we roll them out to students, there's there's a real question here based on what Siobhan's saying, whether what we, what we then offer after that lengthy process is actually what students or employees or what the workforce of the future actually needs from us. What do you think? I, I can't help thinking this having spent close to four decades working in the sector around the world that you become accustomed to that's how things are around here that's how we do things that's the way universities work that's that's the protocols that we have and um i the, the thing i really enjoy about this podcast and really enjoy about the work that i'm doing at uh, with, with headaches and with people like you nor i have to say is the chance to listen to some fresh diverse voices who are making points from a different perspective by bringing fresh eyes to things that aren't like aren't burdened by that four decades of doing it like it's always been done but just think about things of how they could be done and i i i, I think it's so important for leaders in our universities to ensure that they reach out reach down reach sideways look elsewhere rather than the the people around them that often look like them um, to get some views and some ideas that help them see what what could be done rather than what we've always done around here. And Siobhan's, Siobhan's insights with that were were particularly striking. She, she she said something there that that really jarred with me when she said it, and I imagine probably jarred a little bit with people in the sector when she said it too, saying. All of this can be solved by just adhering to the profit motive. What did you think of that? I thought that was interestingly provocative, but actually in keeping with what you've just raised, uh, which is the notion that we need to be engaging with different voices 
And I think those voices are not always ones that we will agree with or that will come from exactly the same backgrounds that we come from. So I actually think it's fabulous to have a provocative thought like universities should be um, aligning with a profit motive. Um, And then let's take that thought and think about, you know, why do you disagree with it or what aspects of it can you agree with and can you actually utilize to drive change in the sector? And so while we may not want to completely adopt what you said, I actually think there's nothing wrong with universities thinking like a business and operating like a business that has a very strong purpose and that does good in society. And whether you agree with that or not, I think you can't deny the economic opportunity that that exists in the place of workforce skilling, upskilling, reskilling, and and just, you know, looking at some of the, the funding that Rejig has received. I mean, it's pretty prestigious and it's it's very healthy levels of funding. So they have secured capital from Salesforce Ventures, from Skip Capital, which is headed by one of the Atlassian co-founders, from Airtree Ventures and from Culture Amps, Didier Elzinga. So those are pretty heavy hitters in the Australian venture capital context. So again, whether you know we agree with that you know profit motive or not, I think um, it's worth for us to, to consider that there is a significant economic opportunity in the skills space. Certainly is. Uh, the, the way that she um, quite rightly clarified that we should stop talking about the future of work now, but recognise what work is and what it's become already, that that concept is gone. And um, look, look, I, th- I, th- I thought about the way that the sector might re- respond to that very blunt profit motive call for action. And like you, I think there's more to it than that. There's more nuance. The complexity of government, governance and stakeholder viewpoints mean that there's more than that. But like you, that provocation really, I think, got me thinking and needs to get the sector's leaders thinking about where's the revenue going to be coming from that that was what was behind her comment the fact that there is sitting staring us in the face there with changes in work moves towards lifelong learning different models of looking after the skills needs of future populations of of current populations very new revenue streams and growth opportunities in new markets and Whilst every vice chancellor in an Australian university and many else uh, elsewhere around the world are looking at enrolment declines, probably limited public funding, despite the fingers crossed and hopes we all have, to not look for growth opportunities and new revenue streams from new markets would, in her words, be you know a, a, a very damaging thing for le- for leaders to do. Exactly right, and I think it's uh, it is really on us as leaders in the sector to think with curiosity and and to to think deeply about how do we continue driving the sector forward and if funding is constrained which i mean that that is the reality that we're in we are having to look at what are the new ways of the business model of higher education so what are the new sources of revenue generation um and and i think that provocation is appropriate even just from that perspective of taking us outside of our current business model of of enrollments. Well, Nora, it's been really great to work with you in 2023 on the so many interesting, diverse and varied and insightful guests that you've brought to the podcast this year. You've probably left a a note there that might form, I hope, the, the platform for us to have some even more interesting conversations next year with other people that might give us some further insights and some further ideas about where new revenue, where growth might come from. But that's all the time that that we've got for HeadX podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us.